Hello, and welcome to the Ringer NBA show. It's the answer. I am Chris Ryan, and on this week's show, MVP, MVP. It's the Ringer NBA show presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find out what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 years and older. 18 and older in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Arby's. Arby's better not catch you slacking on snacking with their new two-for-five-dollar chicken wraps. And your choice of ranch, barbecue, honey, mustard, and a bonus flavor called Incredible Value. You can't taste it, but boy, is it sweet. Arby's two-for-five-dollar chicken wraps are here for a limited time at participating locations. Visit an Arby's near you or order ahead on the Arby's app. Oh, what's up, everybody? Thank you so much for listening to another episode of The Answer. I'm Chris Ryan. I'm your host. As you can tell by my second consecutive week starting the show with a chant, we were talking about the MVP award, and I wanted to talk about it because everybody else is talking about it. Some reason, this early in the season, we haven't even gotten to uh, the All-Star break, and I feel like MVP talk is all the rage, more so than all-star game selection, all-star team selection. I just feel like every night when I'm watching basketball, I'll look at Twitter, look at my group chat, and it's just like, oh, MVP, this guy should be caught in, in the MVP conversation. I can't believe this guy's in the MVP conversation. That's ridiculous. I feel like it really started this season with the Luka stuff, like with Luka getting crowned, kind of going into the season as a MVP to be, and that really put the MVP conversation on Front Street to, to start with. But I was watching... I was watching the Lakers a bunch this week. I was watching them play the Thunder. I was watching LeBron put in 40-minute nights. I was like, what is he doing? It's February. Like, he should be tired. I'm, I'm, I'm only a few years older than LeBron. I'm tired. And then I was like, oh, he's campaigning. He wants that MVP. And we want to give it to him. You know what I mean? Like, I think that people, people recognize if it took this Lakers run to recognize his importance to the game and, and his greatness still, I think people are fully aware of that and there are some arguments to be made for Embiid and there are arguments to be made for Jokic and there are arguments to be made for Curry and I guess Doncic and, and, and Giannis and all these other people, but it does feel like it's LeBron's trophy to lose. And I feel like he is building up his resume and I feel like when he goes out and he is still playing at the end of these Thunder games, when Davis is resting, there are different situations, but when Davis is resting and he's out there and he's, he's like, watch me. You know what I mean? Like I'm national TV and I am the MVP of this league and I will show it to you in February whether or not these games wind up mattering at all in the long run. Maybe it's just, maybe he's wants to make sure that they have home court advantage in whatever the playoffs wind up looking like. But to me, he's campaigning. So I wanted to talk to two people today about why we care so much about the MVP, why we started caring about it so early in the season. And maybe beyond this obvious group of guys who are MVP candidates, LeBron, Jokic, Embiid, Curry, Giannis, whoever. Who are the real MVPs? 
Who are the guys who are actually invaluable to their team? The essential, essential players for their team. So Justin Verrier and I came up with a starting five of the actual MVPs. But first, let's talk to Kyle Mann about why we're so obsessed with this award. All right, now with his return performance, his return appearance on on The Answer, it's Kyle Mann. Kyle, what's going on? Not too much, man. Just uh, hanging out in this ice out here, trying to stay warm. So Kyle made a video this week that you can find on our YouTube page about Joel Embiid. And I'd say it's like, there's some constructive criticism in that video. But for the most part, the reason why you did the video is kind of to reckon with the leap that Embiid is making. And to some extent, the leap that the Sixers are making and his position as an MVP co-favorite, I think, with LeBron this this year. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, it's a three-horse race, I think. I mean, I think Jokic, LeBron, and, and Embiid are the three guys. Um, it's funny because Giannis actually didn't slip like tremendously if you start looking at the numbers, but I think that can kind of tie into some of the things that I think we're going to talk about. Yeah, so I do, I do want to talk about that. The, 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 thing, the reason I wanted to ask you to talk to me about this in the first place, though, is I wanted to get your feelings on why the hell we're talking about MVP award anyway. If this was like a normal season, we would be, I think, either at or just past Christmas. You know, it's, uh, I feel like we're just bleeding over from last season anyway. And in my experience in years past, like this is a pretty recent phenomenon. I think that this is kind of can be traced back to the Russ season, the the Russ triple-double season where he won the MVP in 17 over Kawhi and Harden. And that being this really contested, I don't want to say contested election, but very contested award. (laughs) And ever since then, I feel like we've sort of started to like introduce MVP conversations a little earlier, a little earlier to the extent now where when I'm looking at Twitter during an NBA night, I feel like the conversation is almost entirely about who's going to win the MVP and who should win the MVP and who's not worthy of the MVP. Have you noticed the same thing? I've noticed people talking about sort of a lack of narrative in this season that maybe it's felt a little flat on that front. Um, I have I don't know that I've noticed it as for teams uh, you mean uh, like the that there's no like breakaway team sort of thing right yeah yeah uh, that that it has been a little ho hum maybe that's a, I mean there are a lot of different kind of pressure pressurizing factors I guess that could cause that um, maybe the the bubble I I don't think that I'm going to break news to anybody and say that this is a super super unique year and I think that it's having some some effects that could be a result of what you're talking about I mean like teams. Some teams started slow, took it easy. You know, like we've had varying uh, degrees of people being ready. We've had varying degrees of availability. And then you've got that on top of sort of uh, the gamesmanship of people being rested teams. You know, uh, the game within a game thing that teams do in a season. Yeah, That's a great point. I mean, like on any given national TV night, if you're watching the Tuesday or the Wednesday night games or the Thursday night games, you'll get all fired up to watch a game where Going into it, there's all these caveats. Oh, this guy's not playing. There's COVID. There's this is the second night of a back to back. These guys have been on the road for seven days, et cetera, et cetera. Like Kevin Durant gets pulled off of a court. Like you have no idea going into it, like what curveball is going to get thrown at you as a viewer to say nothing of the guys who are actually participating in it. So you're right. It's it, it's not it's not a normal season by any stretch of the imagination. But I do think that we are in this interesting place in terms of how we talk about the NBA, where we're a little betwixt in between MLB and NFL. Like, it's a high-volume sport, not unlike baseball, like half the amount of games of baseball, but, you know, like, the, they, they typically play 82 games to 100 games a season. And so that's, there's a lot of data points in there. There's a lot of, like, ups and downs. But we want to talk about it like it's the NFL, 
we want to have these definitive inflection points of this happened. So this guy is now this. And I think that the MVP race is kind of the NBA's version of the way we talk about quarterbacks in the NFL. You know, it's like, you, you, we could talk about these teams, but it's much more fun for some reason to talk about Mahomes, Brady, Russ, whoever. And I wonder whether, do you think that that's the same thing for the way we talk about like the top five, six, seven NBA players? Yeah, there, I think if, you, if you're zooming out, there is sort of an interesting, God, there are so many different reasons why I think that this has developed the way it has. Um, there are a lot of different reasons why individualism has sort of uh, permeated and pervaded the sport to the extent that it has. Um, I think that it goes, I, I actually was kind of going back and studying uh, MV, the history of the MVP award. Um, it's interesting that, you know, for like the first seven or eight years of the, of the, of the league, they didn't even have an MVP. Um, and, and, and in studying, um, I, I agree with you that it, it's like, I think it's, it's a function of the fact that we, we just have a lot of time on our hands and we iterate <laughs> so much fat. That's the biggest thing is that we iterate, we don't iterate daily anymore. I mean, you, you're the son of a newspaper man, right? I think I've heard I, you say yeah. that before. I mean, yeah. like we, we used to iterate daily and now we're to the point where we iterate up to the second and it's just gotten more and more. Mm-hmm. So we need these conversations to sort of contextualize and add color to it. Um, in the broad sense, like I, I like I was saying, um, I, I it it's a it's an odd thing the MVP award to me uh, because individualism sort of entered. There's like this sort of like original sin moment in the NBA if you go back and look. And I learned this from studying like the evolution of jump shooting. There's some people that think that basketball. I don't know if there's like a I don't know for sure why they didn't have MVPs like the first few years of the NBA, but there's an interesting thing where when jump shooting came around and that is like players being more enabled to create for themselves. Thus we started to get this huge inflation of like counting stats and players. And then like from there we grew into like, what can the individual do? And that has just become a whole culture on its own within basketball to the point where you and I've talked about this before people become obsessed with like individual players, even over teams at some point. Sure. I mean, that's it. There's an interesting parallel are, are, are you suggesting that there is a school of thought that team basketball suffered because of the like the primacy of individual skill and individual sort of the our celebration of individual players? Yeah, we've. Well, I mean, I think that we've seen some. Uh, we've seen a few timelines kind of go lately. I've been thinking about this a lot. Like we we had this interesting pre Jordan timeline where it was like the players that were revered were like the the guys that could score, but they were like kind of their games were really predicated on sharing and things like that. And I think, I even think we talked briefly about this last time I was here. It's just kind of like when the individual started to get more, I I feel like it was around the early nineties. You, I remember you, you made some point about like, when did the best player on the best team become the thing? And we've kind of had this push and pull between like what this, we value so highly this idea of a player producing the maximum counting stat thing that they can. And that is, has like produced stand culture, which I think is like highly, <laughs> highly damaging to basketball. Uh, and, and those two things grade against each other, like winning and stand culture. So, um, yeah, it, it is a whole like separate, like parallel culture to basketball. I think that we've recovered some. I think the pace and space era actually has recovered some of that. Uh, but but yeah, that, that, that's uh, that's that's kind of a thing that I've watched unfold in basketball over the last several years. When do you? I mean, so going back through the MVPs, when did you see that the best player, best team thing really started to to sort of coalesce? Well, I, I looked it up. The it's hard to track. I mean, like because I think 
narrative plays a big part in this too. And I don't know that I could put my finger on that exactly when that started to happen. But the MVP has played for the champion 26 different times. There are some repeat offenders in there. Uh, Bill Russell, Michael Jordan, LeBron, and Bird are four people that have repeated. Um, best player, best team also means a few different things. Well, two different things specifically. It means because they're two... I think what it kind of comes down to, and I think that elephant in the room we have to address here, is that the regular season and the playoffs are basically two different sports. And I mean, I, you've, uh, there's a big thing on YouTube if you want to go watch. I think it's from the Sloan Conference where Bob Myers talks about that at length, just talking about how they they are just completely different. So winning the regular season, being the best team in the regular season often is, and having like this maximum stat output. I was looking this up that like Giannis, Giannis had like an incredible statistical season last year carried about as much as a person could and i actually in a video paralleled that with like michael jordan in 1988 who had like a career year lebron in 2010 had like a career year by a bunch of catch-all stats um but they didn't end up winning the title so i guess what you're talking about like best player best team um i don't even know if i know you could answer that in like a clean way because uh best player best team during the regular season doesn't ultimately mean you win which is what this is all about adding to winning well, we can start talking about specific examples because I think it helps with this best player, best team idea is that, like you, like you said, the two favorites, I think, are Embiid and LeBron for different reasons. And then I think you, you mentioned Jokic as this third, this third party, but Jokic's team, while improving drastically over the last couple of weeks, are still, I would say, struggling compared to last year's Nuggets team. So does Jokic have to wait his turn? Like, is... Is Jokic, should Jokic be taken seriously even if the Nuggets are like a six seed, you know, like, and are kind of up and down this season? There's some things here that are kind of chicken egg, especially with it, and it applies to, to Embiid too. I think that like players are unfairly penalized at times. And we overlook this a lot. Like the fact that Embiid has had a roster successfully built around him that like caters to his. Finally, the, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the caters to, I mean, that's a major part of it, you know, and, and like I've had some very fun back and forth with Sixers fans about this, that, that like if, if you look in, at the way that metrics and efficiency are measured, you can make a great pass and if the player misses the shot, you know, you're penalized for that. That penalizes your efficiency. Well, the fact that players are making shots for Embiid, I still don't think that the, I think the Sixers are near the bottom of the league in like spot of efficiency, but they're still really good. Um those things matter. So it's like the fact that Jokic has a team that is less less tailored to him effectively at this moment. Like if you swapped Joel Embiid for for Nikola Jokic, what would happen? You know, because I, I've seen some people that have Jokic first. You were talking about him third, and then also uh, you have to factor in. Uh, it's it's just you can't. It's not really totally fair to compare the context in a vacuum as if they don't matter because they matter a huge amount, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean. This is something that's like debated among many, but really decided among comparatively few, I think. And that's one of the most interesting things about it. I think in some ways the MVP award becomes closer to like uh, a pop culture award that we give, like say the Oscars, you know what I mean? Where, and I, I think another parallel with the Oscars is it used to be that in, and when I was younger, Oscar movies came out in November at the late, at the earliest. And the Oscar season, quote unquote, was like, Two, two or three weeks, you know what I mean? Especially pre-digital. And now, Oscar movies can come out pretty much anytime during the calendar year and there are mechanisms through which to keep those movies in, in front of people's faces and people thinking about them as award seasons. You can re-release movies in theaters when, you, when, you, when we have theaters. And you can just like kind of press the button to put 
a Francis McDormand or a Denzel Washington or whoever in front of people's faces repeatedly over the course of the year and tell a story that says, this is why this is the year this person should win this Oscar. And this is why this movie is the best representative of that. I think it's similar for the NBA right now. I think we're watching LeBron, and I mentioned this in my intro, but LeBron going out and playing 40 plus minutes in overtime games against the Thunder in, in February so it has nothing to do with whether or not they're going to repeat. You know what I mean? And I appreciate the fact that he's doing it and he's fucking awesome this year. And he's definitely, as much as I love Joel, I think LeBron's the MVP, but it's... Really? Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But like, I do kind of wonder whether or not LeBron is campaigning. I mean, LeBron's hands are everywhere in terms of his influence, you know? Uh, it's hard. To, that stuff is really difficult to quantify. Um, I mean... In terms of narrative, we shouldn't attach it to this award, but we do. Um, and and also, uh, you know, LeBron, something that really just blows my mind, that I, it's odd to me at this stage in his career, considering what he's accomplished, that it's like, you know, it's not like it's like a hip thing to say. It's not like an edgelord take that like LeBron is still good. I, we still do that shit on Twitter. It's so we're just like, man, he's so good. Um, but it is insane. That when you take a step back and look at like the leaderboard for the MVP, LeBron is ten years older than the other three running people here. So, I know. and that's uh, in some ways, isn't that also part of why he's in the contention, or part of why he might be the favorite? Is because he is accomplishing this at thirty six. He has been looked over the last couple of years for a younger generation of players, and yet everywhere he goes, he just fucking wins. Yeah, and and there's another. There are other factors too. Like like I, I have I wrote here in our our doc that like. There are all kinds of like, I think the reason that we just, we, we obsess about, you know, the, this award and it gets people riled up is that we, we just love to obsess over like the unquantifiable things that, that have to be applied. They're just inevitable. So LeBron's, you, you were talking about him being 36. It's like, technically we shouldn't, the, the MVP is just not capable of handling the width of the scope of somebody like LeBron. Like, I don't feel like that you, he's such a special case. Like and you and you start to think about like the mileage on him, and then also like he has these two kind of warring things going on where he's older, yeah, and he's gone to the final so many times now that like winning the title, which is kind of the point, it's it's like which do you want to do? Do you want, he could just go all out and average like insane averages, but but he kind of paces himself. So I just I just think that LeBron is a really interesting case. It fascinates me that you think that he's. Uh, I mean, it's not like bizarre, but. Uh, yeah, that, that's neat. But I think I'm a I'm not a victim, but I'm like definitely vulnerable to the story that this that this season is telling, not only about this season, but about last season. And I think that you, we could get into a very interesting discussion here about whether or not winning it or not winning it sometimes is a good or bad thing. Not to get too galaxy brain about it, but I do think that winning the MVP award was really bad for Russ's career. Like I think winning the, winning that MVP there was already a lot of like anti-rush chatter about like he's stat padding or he ruined KD because he's not like an efficient point guard who sets KD up for success all the time. But that season, which started out and it had like all this romance to it because he stayed, you know, or whatever. And then he was averaging a triple-double, which I think on its surface is like very cool. But like when you think about what goes into putting together those stats, you're just like, right. So you were just having like Steven Adams like volleyball set it to you so that you could get the rebound. That stuff happens, and then he wins the award over Kawhi and Harden. I feel like he gets blamed for it. You know, it's like he gets blamed for, and and it's like, oh, Russ, Russ won this MVP unfairly or this like tainted MVP award, and now ever since then, I feel like has been this kind of pariah. 
Do you think that Russ's MVP, this is a you know, lighthearted question. Do you think that Russ's MVP is the crash winning the Oscar of MVPs in terms I don't of think like it's how that it's bad. <laughs> I don't think it's that bad. I mean, like there's, I, I don't know whether that would be Derrick Rose. Like it, it's not that, that bad, but that's a, that's a, that's a worthwhile shout. I, and I wouldn't say, you know, I think that, is it La La Land Moonlight and we wish we could have given it to Moonlight and it didn't actually have the accounting error at the very end? Like, <laughs> I, I don't I don't know, but man, like, I, I wonder whether or not LeBron not winning the MVP over the last, whatever it's been, like five years, has actually like set him up to win it this year. Like, I wonder if he had won one in Cleveland, uh, like in, in those last couple of seasons at Cleveland, and then like maybe won it last year or something. Although I don't necessarily think he had like an MVP season before the, the bubble last season. Like if that sets it up where it's like we have to dap this dude up, this might be the last time we have to give LeBron the MVP. Yeah, I mean, I hate that kind of thing. Like I we should just we you should not be an Oscar voter then. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> we 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 have to I mean, God, it's it's just like we we kind of have to do it in some ways where um it's it feels inevitable. Like these I just keep thinking about that that parallel between like winning the moment, like whatever that means, and then like there there is this really interesting parallel of like letting letting the season unfold all the way. I mean, we we can't. It's better to get, and I know the Ringer has done this numerous times. Like it's we we always are better about evaluating these things in hindsight. It seems like you know, like Oscar, like there are all kinds of Oscar winners that like year the test of time has proven like this thing lasts, this thing aged better than this thing. And, you know, I was talking about like how the counting stat boom sort of hit a point with with like uh, the Iverson MVPs. I'm gonna, that's a great way to have more Sixer fans come after me. Jesus, uh, I can't believe you have that. that yeah, <laughs> I admire your courage. The goal. <laughs> no, and then, uh, well, and then, yeah, like the Derrick Rose and then and then Westbrook. Yeah, it's like those kinds of things. Um, they, they do just kind of accumulate over time. But um, it, it is interesting that we just it feels set up to fail to me. That's what I'm saying. Like, because the MVP awards should take the entirety of the season in, in, into account because of all the different factors that go on during the season. Like we talked about, like, you know, teams, teams don't show. And that, that's something with Embiid that I think specifically is going to be really interesting to see. He's making simple passes out of the post. Like we talked about his passing has gotten better. Um, but you know, what's it going to look like whenever, it, you have to take in the nuance of what teams do, and that's part of the puzzle for me. And that's what makes LeBron so brilliant is that like he can make those adjustments. So if you're just looking at, it's an incomplete picture to me to look at part of the season uh, and not the whole thing. Would your choice be Embiid then? It's man, it is really really tough. Are you, are you a Jokic truther? Like, what are you what are you no, doing I, to me? I mean, I'm I'm a big Jokic person. I, I really, really enjoy him. I as love a Jokic, but I just don't think he he can be in this conversation. But I think if you swapped Jokic into what what would the Sixers look like if you swapped Jokic onto that team? How would that affect their spacing? It would, that would be an interesting experience experiment. Like, what would would they be better or worse? Like, you know, Jokic, um, you know, Embiid is shooting the hell out of the ball right now. That's a huge thing. He's getting a huge amount. I mean, his on-off numbers are the highest of those three. He's plus 14.2, um, and he's shooting 67.2, almost almost the other number uh, from in true shooting. So, uh, and, and he also has been a better, uh, had a higher two-way impact this season. You know, he's not, like I said, he's not blocking as many shots this year, and, he, and he's fouling less as a re- result and staying on the floor. But... Um, yeah, in terms of two-way impact, I think he's at the top. 
what would your case for LeBron just be purely narrative driven? Because that's kind of that's kind of what we've circled around. No, I mean, I think I think that this year, I, I for, for whatever reason, I've just seen a tremendous amount of Lakers games. I find this team, this version of the Lakers, more entertaining to watch than last season's Lakers. And I was curious whether or not they were going to have a uh, flip the switch here, and whether they were going to be like, "We'll be cool if we're the third seed," and we just most important thing is that AD and LeBron are ready for the playoffs, and they had a really long season, and the, the bubble was very demanding. And I, I just don't think that that's the case. I think that almost every night, sometime in the third quarter, they just throw on maximum overdrive and just get after teams. And LeBron's intensity and precision—I just don't feel like he's been playing sloppy at all. I know that's not like an MVP staple but i just watching him play i just feel like he's incredibly locked in and pure it's a very pure lebron experience this season so i i'm not even throwing numbers at you as much as i'm like he is the best player on the best team and he might be the best player on the best team over the course of two years which i do feel like warrants recognition he's the best player in the world i mean i think that we we did make a mistake of like coming off of that in the last few years i feel like we did that a couple different times i mean lebron lebron is unequivocally the best player in the world and and you know uh, second I, I don't want to get into that but you know and but also another thing that i would you're gonna, add you're going to get into goat stuff here <laughs> no nah, i hate goat stuff uh, <laughs> but I was going to say, too, that like we were talking about quantifying, not quantifying things. You know, LeBron, I made a whole video about this, about the fact that he I, I tried to coin a term elevationism. It's just like LeBron himself is a context. You know, you put LeBron on a team and some of the things that you that he he is a floor raiser, one of the best floor raisers, maybe the best floor raiser we've ever had in basketball. So there are a lot of little intangible things that are difficult to measure. Couldn't um, do it with Lonzo and B.I., though. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, uh, it, it's it's kind of it's a funny thing where LeBron uh, this this would be my last thing I would say about Le- LeBron can add value to players who in other contexts might not have the same value, and to me, that is the definition of individual player value. He is sort it. of LeBron is he's sort of like a really great amp, like you could that you could plug like any kind of crappy guitar into, and sure. you're like, damn, that sounds better. Like he's that's the Marshall how Le- stack of <laughs> yeah. No, I like the idea of LeBron is like is doing value redistribution. He's like spreading it around, and that's that maybe is something that like we don't recognize enough because it's hard to quantify that. Kyle, thanks so much for joining me. People can check out your Joel and Bead video on the Ringer's YouTube channel, and you are on Ringer NBA University every two weeks. I believe the most recent episode went up on Wednesday. Kyle, thanks so much, man. Thanks for having me. This episode is supported by State Farm. Man, I remember when I first got into a car accident, it was pure frustration because I did not have State Farm. And now that I do have State Farm, it is an exclamation of pure joy. But the only words that you need to remember are, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. This episode is brought to you by Arby's. It's 3 p.m. and dinner is still hours to come. Maybe lunch didn't quite hit the spot. That's where the new two-for-five-dollar chicken wraps from Arby's come in. Available in ranch, barbecue, and honey mustard. They're perfect for the afternoon snack attack or as an add-on to your meal. Arby's two-for-five-dollar chicken wraps are here for a limited time at participating locations. Visit an Arby's near you or order ahead on the Arby's app.
This episode is brought to you by Visible Wireless. Want a wireless provider that always brings its A-game? Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included. And as if that wasn't already a huge win, you could use promo code RINGER20 to receive $20 off your first month just for listening to us talk about basketball. Not bad, right? You don't need more than one line of wireless to save. Just switch to Visible at Visible.com and use promo code RINGER20. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month. All right, now I'm joined by my buddy, Justin Verrier. Justin oversees our NBA stuff over at TheRinger.com, and he is the host of Group Chat, where I used to where I used to lay my my hat, but now I'm obviously off on my solo project. Uh, Justin, what's going on, man? Good to see you. Always good to see you, Chris. RIP, the uh, original group chat format. I know. Um, I wanted to have you on because we're going to talk about the real MVPs, the the guys who do, like you and me, the guys who do the work behind the scenes. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. But um, before we got into that, I know that you are actually a big proponent of MVP talk, that you like having MVP talk be part of your daily breakfast, that you don't mind it showing up <laughs> pre-All-Star. We're already talking about MVPs. Why? Like, Have you always been that way? Or is this more of like a recent thing because you also need to create content around the NBA? Yeah, it's kind of like my brain flakes. You know, it's where I get the, yeah. the protein or whatever, all, <laughs> all the good vitamins into my diet. No, I mean, I, I think when you're going through the slog of a season, you can probably focus a little bit too much on certain things. And in like in the case of the ringer, perhaps focus a little bit too much on the esoterica of things. It's nice to take a step back and take a nice snapshot of all of the really important things and to do sort of the, the deep dives, the data work and whatever, in order to really like get a sense of where we are. That's why I like it. It almost forces me to do the work. Do you wish there were more awards? Do you think MVP basically has like, it's got too much on its shoulders and there should be more nuanced awards that we're giving some of the best players? I think there should be fewer awards, but I'm open to replacing some of the dumber awards like Sixth Man of the Year, which I still don't really understand why that is important and is a part of uh, the, the yearly award ceremony and replace it with something a little bit more interesting. It's funny because like, I think every year now since I've been here, we've done a other awards post to complement our just like traditional awards. And it's actually really tough <laughs> coming up with other awards. The one that I've always really liked is the Skeleton Key Award, um, who has traditionally gone to like a PJ Tucker type, right? Right, right. Now that's that's essentially segueing into what I wanted to have you on for. So these last couple of weeks, especially, but it, really this whole season, I think partially because this season feels so close to last season. We had such a quick turnaround from the end of the bubble to the beginning of this season that it almost feels like a 1A, 1B, like an extension of it. But I feel like we started talking about MVP really early. And in the meantime, I've been watching basketball this season and on a night-to-night basis, I'll just see guys, like as I'm sure everybody does, where I'm just like, were it not for this dude, this team would be screwed. And in that sense, that really does encapsulate value. Now, I wanted for the sake of our conversation, what Justin and I are going to do Let's come up with a starting five of actually valuable guys. That is not to say that Steph Curry or Luka Dodgers are not valuable, but we're just kind of trying to like focus on the dudes who basically make everything work and drastically improve their teams, even if sometimes that doesn't always show up on the stat sheet. The CR award. 
pretty much. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> but you know, that's this is the kind of thing that they don't give give out an award for. Really, they don't give sure. it a, like. There's a couple of awards, like in the Premier League. Sometimes you'll see an award go to a guy like Jordan Henderson, who is the reason why Liverpool kind of works. Like he is the Draymond of Liverpool. Um, but they don't really have that award in the NBA. And I kind of, I kind of wish there would be some more nuanced specific categories rather than just most improved six-man rookie DPOI and MVP. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of the guys that we've pinpointed here are guys who, who don't really like have explosive offensive statistics. I, I think that is probably the through line through them. And I think most of them maybe have more of an impact on defense where we don't have the same thoroughness of, of statistics in order to really capture how good they are or just like, you know, someone like our first guy, perhaps, Chris, uh, who knows how to set up a team pretty well. Yeah, so let's start at point guard. I mean, we don't necessarily have to do a starting five here, but th- uh, th- we're talking about the actually valuable guys. And I was watching, we're recording this on a Thursday, I watched Suns Bucks last night, so I'll be drawing a lot from that. And I just couldn't get over Chris Paul. I, I-, I feel like in-, in some ways, we haven't discussed his impact on the NBA and this, se- this sort of third act of his career enough after the New Orleans stint, after the Clippers stint, but his basically his ability to go in and, and almost be like a consulting firm that you bring <laughs> in to like optimize your team. I, I kind of wanted to ask you, you clearly the Bucks are going to make the playoffs unless like some disastrous health thing happens for them in terms of injuries. But how bad would a team have to be for Chris Paul not to be able to transform them? <laughs> It's a really great question. I mean, the Thunder are probably the prime example of like his impact on that, right? Just because last year, I think going into that season, no one really knew what to make of them, except for you, actually. You were very bullish on on the three-guard lineup. I love a three-guard lineup. Yeah, (laughs) it ended up being true. Like, he pretty much made that viable when you wouldn't think that Dennis Schroeder, Shea Gilders, Alexander, and him would be able to do much on both ends. But... uh, I mean, he provides structure, I think, to a lot of structuralist situations. And I think the Sun situation is particularly interesting because they almost had all the pieces and you really saw him lean into being more of an orchestrator than I'd ever seen before. He was almost overpassing to an extent. Like the whole thing about Paul is people say that he spends his game setting people up earlier in the game then tries to take over late when he needs to. It seemed like he was doing that over an elongated season where he was just trying to get the guys like Cam Johnson involved, Devin Booker going and being sort of the all-star he needed to be, eight and whatnot. And now you're starting to see him take over a little bit more. And now you're starting to see like the full Chris Paul experience. Yeah, last night was a really, or the, the, the Wednesday night game against the Bucks was a really good example where I just felt like guys were in and out. Aiden had a really nice game until he got into deep foul trouble. But Paul was just like the... He was the guy who kept the Suns within striking distance the entire game. And I think that that's something that is really underrated about what Chris Paul does. It's like, I, I saw a stat that was like the, the Bucks have played in uh, like the fewest games decided under 10 points or less be- in the last two years because they just blow everybody out. I would be really curious to know how, many, how often a Chris Paul team gets blown out because I feel like he's able to stop the bleeding and keep a team within eight or 11 and then really drive them over like to get back in the game. That's what happened against the Bucks, and I, I also feel like he is just, he's so miserable to deal with, you might as well do the right things. You know, like, you watch, I wonder what he would be like on the Hawks. You know, obviously it would change a lot because of Trey Young's need to have the ball on his hands a lot. But like, what do you think would be like, 
his effect on a team like the Wizards if he was there instead of Westbrook or the Wolves if he was there instead of D'Lo? I do think he's able to vacillate between like getting his and setting up others better than someone like Westbrook. It seems like you have to play a certain type of way with Westbrook. But as we saw, like just with Paul's transition from Houston to the Thunder, and even before that from the Clippers to Houston to the Thunder, he can kind of pick and choose how you're really utilizing him. I mean, they pretty much traded on and off with Harden and Houston. And then he it was kind of like stewarding some of those guys where, where I think the 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 math showed that like when two of them played, when all three played together, they were really good. But only when two of them played together, they weren't as good. And so you have to imagine that he would be doing for Beal what he's doing with Booker now. And now you could say that like Booker hasn't been as scintillating, hasn't been like, hasn't really taken the step. I think a lot of people thought with Paul next to him. But I mean, as you're seeing lately, I think that Paul impacts winning in ways that like someone like Westbrook just doesn't. Like even beyond like the efficiency and everything like that, Paul is able to micromanage situations in order to bring out the best. And I think his clutch record with the Thunder in particular, which was like historic last year, both his individual production and also the Thunder as a team in the clutch speaks to that. He is just tempo for me. Like I, I still feel like Russ plays at one speed and one speed only. And Chris Paul can play at a variety of different tempos and he knows how to like slow things down and speed things up. His counterpart or his adversary, I guess, on that Wednesday night game in, uh, against the Bucks, uh, was Chris Middleton. That at least the one that I'm talking about, and I would put Chris Middleton on this team too. And I think that this this is like a nice sneaky little subplot that I want us to keep our eye on over the course of the season, which is obviously the best player on the Bucks is Giannis, but is the most important player on the Bucks Middleton? I think it has to be right. Like this season in particular, I've I've come full circle on Middleton. Like he is kind of the the geeks. Uh, like MVP, he's the guy that like some of our quants and stats guys put up uh, above their bed at yeah. night <laughs> just because yeah. the efficiency stats, uh, just the shooting, he's on pace for another 50, 40, 90 season again. But what I'm seeing from him is it seemed like in last year's playoffs, the one game that the Bucks won against the Heat where he just went nuclear and they pretty much fed him like 50 shots and it was like, Chris, just save us. Like, we need to save pace uh, in this series with Giannis gone. It seems like it almost emboldened him and perhaps the team even to start feeding him more in certain situations. And you're starting to see him almost be the difference maker in situations where they need him to be. And I think in clutch situations, again, another player, like I think it's starting to show where Giannis is really like playing more of an off ball. I'm a, a just a, a transformative big man style of like screen setter sort of position rather than what we're typically used to seeing him as this, some sort of like light years ahead point guard. And it's more Middleton is controlling it. And you're starting to see him being the orchestrator, getting Giannis involved in alley-oops or just like settling into this mid-range shot, which is like, quite frankly, one of the more dangerous like offensive options in the game right now. Yeah, and they, def- they desperately need that change of pace because the Bucks can be a little bit monochromatic with the like the driving kick and... You know, a guy can be like two feet from the hoop and like does a 360 in midair to find Pat Connaughton in the corner because that's what that's how their offense is kind of laid out. But watching Middleton kind of work to get to his little spots on the nail or here or there, get guys in foul trouble, just kind of maybe extend a play a play clock a little bit. Whereas like maybe early on in the play clock, clock they're shooting threes like he kind of just like brings a different flavor to that team. It was really interesting watching that that Suns game come down to a last shot because I, I felt like Giannis kind of telegraphed that he was going to be the person to take it. He was doing all this like 
mental exercises down at the other end of the floor as they were coming out of timeout, like kind of giving himself a motivational speaker talk. And so I was like, okay, I guess Giannis is going to take this shot. But that's got to be Middleton's shot. Well, to that point, he was in the corner, if you go back and look at that, waving his hands as Giannis is doing these little dribbles. And like, back to Chris Paul, Paul actually leaves his man to go and double on Giannis. I don't know how much good it did because Giannis is like two Chris Pauls like stacked on top of each other. <laughs> but Paul was like trying to, at the very least, crowd him on that shot as Aiton was going for uh, for the contest there. So like, yeah, you're right. He was like, he was going for it no matter what. And I think everybody on the court knew that for better or worse. Well, De- Devin Booker definitely did because after the game, he was asked <laughs> what he thought about when he saw Giannis pull up from the mid-range and he apparently said, we're in good shape. That's the one place I feel like Booker and Paul really like speak to each other on. There's a little bit of an FU to to both of them that I think I can appreciate. And it sounds like just based on things that have come out about that team, like I, I think they both appreciate it in each other as well. Yeah, they're chirpy. Speaking of chirpy, let's talk about Draymond. So this entire mm. Warriors season, which I, I've really enjoyed as a neutral, like I, I, I wish them well, but I also think that they've gotten more joy out of that franchise in the last 10 years than most people get over a lifetime. <laughs> uh, it's, sure. it's been fascinating to watch like Steph going full MVP Steph, but you wanted to throw Draymond on this list. Why was that? Yeah. So listen, I know you're all about the math. And so I, I have some stats for you here. So I see stats and I see stats like seven points and, and, and four fouls. <laughs> well, seven is actually way too high because he's averaging five points per game this season. Um, <laughs> Jesus. So he's, so he's also shooting sub 20% from three, which is wild. And I, I guess like uh, the, the heave he threw up the other night is indicative of that. So there's only one player in the past three years to have a sub 40 effective field goal percentage who plays 25 plus minutes, and that is Draymond Green. However, he is second best on the Warriors in offensive rating. So he is not next shooting to, next to Uber at all. <laughs> yeah, next to Uber. Actually, what's funny? It's actually Kavon Looney, who I think we could also bring up here because that dude stabilized that that starting lineup and does all the little things that those you beautiful don't. ten days when Kavon Looney was a health, healthy starter. Yeah, <laughs> right. Um, but Draymond has, I mean, to have that level of an impact on offense to begin, like talk, forget about defense, where we all know he's going to orchestrate and do all the brilliant things that we, we've come to know about Draymond. He's one of their better offensive players, even though he's a complete negative whenever he shoots the ball. That's insane. So, and he is essentially playing like point forward for them right now. <laughs> he's a pass force point guard somehow in 2021, and he's playing small ball center on the other end. It's like the most wild combination I've ever seen. So uh, the, the next guys that we wanted to talk about, we were going to cheat and add two people for this. These are two, I, as old school as you can really get in this league, I guess, anymore, rim-protecting centers that you think are having profound effects on their teams. Yep. So Rudy Gobert, Clint Capella, we had John Hollinger on the other day on group chat, and he had made the case uh, for one of his articles in The Athletic that Gobert is so important to the Jazz and what they're doing that he should actually be an, up for regular MVP. and. I think it's a how, really how is that received generally, aside from outside of the Utah people? Probably poorly, unless like you're really into screen assists. But <laughs> I, I think he has a point here in that like everything that the Jazz are doing defensively starts and finishes with Gobert. And I, I think there's this really interesting trend happen um, where I think last year's postseason showed how big man, like just transformative, like unique big men are are kind of 
the counter to this idea that small ball is ruling the NBA, yada, yada. Uh, but I think it's interesting this regular season seeing traditional guys like Gobert and Capella anchor defenses to the point where like they are the defense. They are single-handedly turning around both of those defenses to the point where like some of the forwards, like the, the fours that they're putting out on the court are functionally wings. Like the Jazz start Bogdan Bogdanovich and like he was a small forward shooting guard up until he got to the Jazz. And so... I wonder if teams are going so small for the most part that having this dominant one guy can make such an impact that your regular season defense is pretty much set. Both of these are top 10 defenses. The Jazz are third. Yeah, and you can you can essentially take away... One guy can take away the paint. You know, I watching that Celtics-Jazz game from earlier this week, you could just... Like, Tatum didn't want anything to do with him. Like, and the, Tatum and Brown are like excellent, excellent drivers. And they were just like... I don't think it was it was any kind of self-preservation or embarrassment. I think they were just like, this is stupid. This guy's just going to blot out the sun if I go in like, up against him. So you would see Tatum diving towards the rim and then just kind of be like, um, shit, I have to like throw this back out to Kemba. You know, like this is this <laughs> right. isn't going to work. Yeah. I, I mean, you've seen certain defenses. The Bucks were kind of the trendsetter in this regard of, of selling out and trying to stop the rim, allowing more three-pointers. Now, the math is actually tilting the other way. Zach Cram has a piece on during your up today about this. I, I would recommend people checking out. But like that's the math. Again, so much as people like it's now tilting the other way, like people are trying to take away threes. Uh, more that like the math isn't in favor of that defense because teams are, because people are so much better at shooting threes now that it actually leaving even the worst or second worst player on the team to shoot the three isn't actually mathematically a good idea. Um, but in theory, the Jazz or, or the Hawks are getting that rim protection with one player. They are selling out to stop the rim with just one player, and it, it affords them perhaps more opportunities to go out and guard the three. The, the Jazz are very good at being selective at who they're, uh, they're really allowing to take those shots. I think that's in part because Gobert is out there Basically, not only walling off the paint, but like he's also preventing guys from even thinking about that, leaving the three pointer as perhaps the only shot. Yeah, if that that whole area becomes like not just like contested, it becomes like toxic. Yes. <laughs> You're just like yeah. that. That is like the floor is lava. I'm not going in there. So <laughs> right. for our last player on our actually valuable starting five, uh, a dude who I have a I have a really complicated relationship with. Uh, mm. And has missed had missed a bunch of the season, so I was surprised to see you throw him in there. It's Jimmy Butler. Yeah, I think most of the time you would try to pinpoint someone else from the Heat. Like Bam is the prime example of a guy who probably doesn't get enough love, uh, and he's taken a, a big bump in just like his offensive just duties and also like what he's capable of doing on the floor. Well, there, Bam on Twitter is almost overexposed. But were <laughs> right, we allowed yeah, to go into true. a bar? I bet like most people would not have heard of him. When you get the Zach Lowe feature, you've uh, you've yeah. reached that point, right? Um, but I think you've seen a, a market difference with the Heat since Butler has been back, and I think at a certain point, like just having a superstar actually matters, and like he makes sense of that team in ways that like they weren't getting by like throwing in some of those other like deep bench guys who are good in their own right, Duncan Robinson, all of them. But but Butler kind of makes it all work, and I think that's important. They've won their past three to that point. So our, our lineup here is Chris Paul, Chris Middleton, Jimmy Butler out on the perimeter, and then Draymond Green and a combination of Clint Capella and Rudy Gobert in the middle. How good would that team be in a, in a playoff situation? I Pretty think that's good. A, that's a finals team to me. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I think that that's pretty good. We don't have um, depth, but we don't need it. You know what I mean? Like we have <laughs> right. Um, let me ask you this. This is a little bit on the spot, but before I let you go, is there anybody that you think is in like the contemporary MVP conversation, even if just peripherally, who you think has no business being in that conversation? That you're like, I can't believe we're actually talking about this. I'm trying to think here. Who are some examples? Well, I'll give you the odds on the on the, the current favorites: LeBron, Jokic, Embiid. Durant, Luka, Giannis, Steph, Dame, Kawhi, Anthony Davis, James Harden, Paul George. <laughs> well, Anthony Davis, definitely not. Because that yeah. dude hasn't showed up for most of the games this year. Yeah, well, he, him, and, him and LeBron are doing the exact opposite. Like, I feel like LeBron is actively campaigning for MVP, whereas AD is just like, I'll see you in the playoffs. <laughs> right, right. Um, I mean, I would probably pinpoint some of the guys whose team success hasn't really been there. I mean, Luka is the prime example of that. Are you shocked at what's happening with Luka and the Mavs this year? Or are you just like, you like, I kind of expected this there to be a little bit of a deflation here? I am surprised, probably not shocked. They definitely haven't had their full complement of guys. I mean, Kristaps was out for a while. They had the, a couple guys out with COVID. Um, but I am surprised that Luca, after all the talk about him being kind of almost like a one-man team, you only really need him in order to be successful. Like, he, he was pretty shaky to start the season. And now you're starting to see people come for him, like starting yeah. to talk about like... He's also got some bad habits. Yes. Yeah, that's the other thing. Just like aesthetically, he's really just become the, the successor to, to James Harden here. Harden with like some pretty, pretty bad ref habits, I think. Mm-hmm. Just like really... STFU, Luca. Like everybody gets fouled. <laughs> right. I guess it speaks to just like how we interpret MVP and that, like, and like how much expectations impact our perceptions of that. That, like, the Mavs aren't that much worse than the Warriors. And yet we're all like, oh my God, Steph, just offensive dynamo, yada, yada, yada. And we're like, Luca, uh, I expected you to be MVP from the start. It's all storytelling. If, I mean, if people had just been like, I think if Steph, if they had Clay and the Warriors were like seven wins better, Steph's in the, in a make, makes it a three person race for MVP if he's playing this way. And if sure. they're like, I mean, he still could. Yeah, sure. I, I, he could, but like, I think, I think it's a two horse race for now. Um, Justin, thank you so much. This is a fun exercise. I really appreciate you coming by. Thanks for having me. Take care. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.